On this episode of Clinically Pressed, we are talking with Alex Friedman and Austin Shane. Um, Alex is a strength and conditioning coach that has been on before, um, has been involved with Clinically Pressed, but is continuing to further his career and his education and really focusing on combat sport athletes. Austin is a chiropractor who treats combat athletes out in Arizona. Uh, both of these guys I got to work with during their wrestling careers at UW Lacrosse, so we've known them for a while, and to see what they've done in their careers thus far is fantastic, and what they're going to end up continuing to do um, into the future is going to be awesome. So this is part one of a two-part series on treating combat athletes, so we'll get part two out next week, so please check back for that. Um, before we get going, Paragon Fitness and Nutrition has changed over to Chiron. Um, same discount code applies, but if you have any issues around sleep or looking for very well done, clean, science-based, everything is super specific um, when it comes to your supplement needs. These guys are worth a try. Um, check them out from clinicallypress.com. We got them linked up and use uh, code CP15 at checkout for 15% off. Without further ado, enjoy this episode. Well, welcome to this episode of Clinically Press. We are on with Alex Friedman and Austin Shane, uh, both of who I've known for quite some time, um, both of who I got to help take care of in their combat athlete journey days of UWL wrestling. Um, now both doing unique things with that population, so that's ultimately what we are going to talk about today. Um, Alex. Um, mainly from a strength and conditioning side and some of the other things that um, we'll just say came out in a previous episode with him. So now we're on a schedule. And then Austin, who um, not too long ago finished up chiropractic school um, and is now working out in Arizona. So with that, I will turn it over to Austin to give just a little bit more background on who you are, how you're in this realm, and we'll go from there. Yeah, for sure. So my name is Austin Shane. I'm a chiropractor in Scottsdale, Arizona. Um, I grew up wrestling my whole life. Obviously, like Joel said, wrestled through college with him. Um, and then now I am also a, I'm a wrestling coach for two MMA gyms in the area, um, as well as do some strength and conditioning and treat uh, a lot of the athletes, whether they be MMA, boxing, or wrestling in the area. So trying to figure out how to work with all these athletes the best I can and finding some different stuff that filters into their different like types of athlete training. Alex, and just Alex. a quick reminder. Yeah. Um, well, strength and conditioning coach by trade. Um, I've been working my way through my graduate program uh, at the University of Denver, but then I've also had a lot of internship experiences, including an internship fellowship at the University of Denver. Um, the principal one that I'm going to kind of reference on this podcast is my internship at the UFC Performance Institute. I was in Las Vegas, uh, which is a resource for 
all contracted UFC athletes. And, uh, and again, there I worked with the performance team in cohesion, but mostly with strength and conditioning. So really the one to kind of kick it off is, you know, you guys having been, you know, quote unquote, um, combat athletes, we'll just use, we'll use that through the term just to kind of cover the whole gamut of what that entails. Cause I'm sure it's, um, it's different for each um, discipline. You know, when you look at wrestling versus boxer, obviously that's very different. Um, and then you throw MMA, which just kind of throws all of it together. Um, you know, at UWL, we've kind of have our training system um, that's evolved since your guys' time. Um, the wrestlers are always interesting in how they kind of fit into that uh, just because of the demands of the sport and the mentality of those athletes. Um, so really just to kind of kick it off, what do you guys see as some of the major differences between the combat athlete and the quote unquote, you know, traditional athlete when we talk football, basketball, you know, baseball, soccer, some of those sports. Go ahead, Austin. Yeah. Um, so on the treatment side, what I see a lot as opposed to different, because uh, I, I, most of what I do right now is work with MMA. Um, so I kind of pair them in as a rotational athlete. What I see differently between those rotational athletes and then my baseball players and uh, tennis players and golfers that I work with are going to be, there's a lot more disc issues that, that occur. So that's whether that be from compression from neck bridges, wrestling your whole life, um, being in a wrestling stance, loading, taking a shot, and putting pressure on the discs. There's a lot of different, whether it's a local disc issue or a radiculopathy that occurs. So that's where we, I get into a lot of my McKenzie, a lot of end-range loading, <clears throat> a lot of neurodynamics, um, and trying to figure out and tease out whether it is an actual nerve issue or a disc issue. Um, and it's something that's just been extremely prevalent through all of the fighters that I've been working with. Yeah, and kind of on the flip side of that, like speaking less anatomical and things from a, like a cultural standpoint, what I see a lot with combat athletes is there's a lot of, you know, sweat equity that you can build up. You know, the harder you train, the harder you work, the better you're going to be, the more respect you've earned type of thing. Um, and while that's great for a training environment and you know, busting into practice or anything. It's not exactly a recipe for longevity or efficacy through a training process. So I, that's more or less a unique issue that each athlete has their own individual specific schedule of training that they follow. And most of the time it's overburdened and overlaid with three practices a day and a training session at night or something like that. So that's uh that's a huge cultural aspect that I think is just warrants attention. Yeah. So that kind of goes into another question I had, um, you know, with tradition, you know, like I'm just going to use football cause that's what I work most closely with. Like there's one practice a day. Um, you know, it's for however many hours there's, and then, you know, depending on, you know, in season, there's maybe two lifts a week. Um, in season versus out of season are different in that regard, but I guess going more towards MMA, but even I know wrestlers do it as well is, you know, you, you don't necessarily stop wrestling in the off season. Like football players don't play football in the winter or in the spring, you know, in their off season. Whereas, you know, MMA athletes probably aren't going 
you know, you're not doing live matches when you're not, tra- you know, necessarily training for the thing, but you're always, do- I'm guessing, doing some sort of training that is specific to the sport, whether it's wrestling or jujitsu or, you know, kickboxing or whatever it may be. From what you guys have seen, and maybe we'll just start with Alex on this one, just to switch it up. Um, how does that look when it comes to trying to program for these athletes? You know, I'm assuming they're still looking at an annual plan that's going to vary based on how many fights they're doing or competitions. But has, from what you've seen going from your, your traditional at Denver, I'm assuming more sports there, where there's kind of set seasons yeah. versus this type of yeah, you kind of hit it on the head you know wrestling and combat sports are in the huge mixed bag of scheduling and training and trying to organize the training process um what's traditional in the mma uh community or uh, combat sports is to have a training camp um, so that's eight weeks out from your fight or from your competition you start training um and you kind of hit the hit the floor with the gas pedal for lack of a better term. Well, at the UFCPI, we're trying to combat that. We're trying to, again, get athletes to recognize the value of training year-round and not training hard in a sense of having a 52-week fight camp, but training in a sense of having a 52-week wellness and health schedule rather than take two months off when I'm on a break and then all of a sudden, eight weeks, it's time to get in shape again. Um, so working with those schedules individually to try and create more of a holistic program per se is, uh, is one of the areas that we can move forward in, in MMA, as far as seeing a training program play out over the course of three or four months up to a fight rather than eight weeks, um, exclusively in eight weeks, you're combining strength and conditioning, tactical preparation, weight cut, and that's just too much and too focused to have an effective fight camp. But that's kind of been the tradition, and that's been what, uh, what the traditional approach is. Um, and the UFC actually put out a great resource for that, which is the um, UFCPI cross-sectional analysis of the combat sport. And they, they outline a great uh, performance paradigm that they kind of employ to work within the eight-week fight camp, but also prolong training outside of the eight-week fight camp. Um, and so when you look at that for an individual athlete, you're always trying to make the program best fit what their needs are. Um, and that'll go kind of into a, our later type of discussion with weight restriction and, and cutting weight. But that that's a huge part of the preparation process, right? You, you need to make weight to – first off get paid but also to be able to compete right so that's a huge factor going into an eight-week fight camp and also you look at the style of fighting or style of mma that an athlete's going to employ you know if a guy is a stand-up kickboxer and he's having a three-round fight that he's most likely going to avoid grappling or try not to grapple then we don't need to put a whole lot of emphasis on his grappling or his lactate conditioning or things like that um Versus I have a jiu-jitsu guy and he's going to go into a fight and try and take it to the ground the whole time. That's a different set of parameters and preparation. So it's hugely multifactorial and you still want to get your kind of what I would like is simple kind of training methodologies in. But you also need to consider a whole lot of different variables that 
maybe aren't as narrowed in on in a Olympic sport setting or a football team setting. Um, so yeah, just a little bit more specific to the individual since it is an individual sport. And then, yeah, and then one thing I've seen a lot is going to be trying to have that open line of communication between sport coach, strength coach, healthcare. That's it's crucial for our combat athletes because there are so many different things going on. You need to all be on the same page. So like at Fight Ready, we spar Wednesdays and Saturdays. If we also went from sparring on a Wednesday, then having them go into a heavy lift on a Wednesday, that's going to set our athletes up for failure. So trying to be on the same page all the way through is, is just, I think, even, even that much more important for these professional combat athletes. So again, you know, injury plays a role in everything uh, with sports. Um, I haven't actually looked at the data and the numbers and who knows how well they uh, would necessarily come out just um, if it's not there yet within this kind of realm of um, combat sports. But from what you've seen, and Austin, I'll come to you first on this one, um, working never through injury necessarily, but kind of, you know, working with injury, um, how does how have you seen how that has had to be adapted, you know, with your athletes? Um, you know, it varies obviously by sport. Like if you're a basketball player and you sprain your ankle, you can still shoot free throws. You can still work on your shooting form. Um, you know, if you broke your hand, you can still run around. You know, football players can still run and stay in shape and, you know, do that even if they broke their hand. It does not seem as easy <laughs> in any of the sports in combat. So how have you seen or how have you personally kind of helped manage that with these athletes? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, a lot of it just comes down to find, find what they can. It's like you're saying with any other sport, it's find what they can do. So we've had, a, uh, we've had a couple hand injuries and elbow injuries at fight ready. Um, and with that, they obviously can't strike. Um, and it's going to be hard to grapple as well. So then we get into, all right, what, what can they do? They can do shadow boxing. They can do shadow wrestling anything that's a low impact. Um, also guess what? They can still ride the air bike. <laughs> so they can get their conditioning on the air bike um, as well as throw them on a safety squad or have them, have them do anything that ignores the need for using that arm. They can still do their lower body lifts. So find, find what they can do um, and just work around that. And then we've also had some, some ankle injuries. So it's going to be the opposite. Um, it's, it's really hard to grapple when you have some sort of ankle injury going on because you can't push off of that foot. So then we're going to go to our striking. We're going to have them hit mitts or one-on-one -on -one time with our coaches, um, which we, we have awesome striking coaches that are able to work around the injuries. And I just tell them, all right, this is going, what's going on. This is what's going to hurt it. Let's avoid going to the right today. Something along those lines. So picking up on patterns and then from there being able to figure out what we can kind of modify. But yeah. Man, I don't know whoever connected combat sports with air dines and air bikes, but <laughs> my heart for an air dine. I love it. I don't know. Yeah. Um, seems to be a favorite in every training and wrestling room, combat room that there is. Um, but yeah, just like I said, it's a case by case basis and, and you find what you can work on. And then there's a lot of, um, Again, the book I just referenced, the cross-sectional analysis that UFC put out, PI put out, uh, they have a good analysis of injuries that occur in combat sports, and they uh, 
they look in depth into kind of a year of their functioning and where most of the injuries come from. Um, a lot of hands and feet and face and, you know, the areas that are high contact within sparring and within striking. Um, All the face. Yeah, right. <laughs> but yeah, so you, you work around what you can and, and that goes into a good thing with strength and conditioning because a lot of it, a lot of things that get taken away by, you know, sports specific training or striking are things that we can avoid and that we probably should be working on anyway in the weird. We don't need to make every exercise that we do look like a takedown or look like, a, I don't know, an arm bar for a lot of Things that we do in the weight room can be more simplistic because they will complement what the athletes are doing on the mat or with the mitts on, right? So I think there's a special place for the, the generalization in the weight room. Not to say that all specificity is bad because specificity is good in terms of um, principles and in terms of energy systems, things like that. But as far as methodologies and specific weight room exercises that we can be selecting, we can select those to complement the sport training, not mimic for, which is a kind of a, a debate that's been going on for a long time in strength conditioning. Yeah. And then another thing on that is um, like that book that Alex referenced. I've read that book like 97 times. I love that book. It's fantastic. Um, one, one of the key points they have on injury stuff is or injury prevention in general is if you have a greater than 10% disparity from left to right, then you're going to have a 70 to 90% increase in injury risk in that, whether it, whether it be a power metric or range of motion in that area. So it comes down to having a good assessment for our fighters and for our combat athletes. Because if, if I know one of my, somebody has a, a wrestling background or even jujitsu background has a lack of internal rotation on one side, guess what? They're, it, the numbers show they're probably going to have sustained some sort of injury through that camp of doing that repetitive motion over and over and over again that we could probably mitigate if we just kind of hit it, at, at, hit it as soon as we find it and work on that at the beginning and kind of do an injury prevention at the beginning instead of trying to deal with the injury after it occurred. And I think, sorry, Joel, I'm going to cut you off. Oh, you're good. You're good. It's hugely interesting to me in, in wrestling, boxing, uh, all types of combat sports, how exclusively like um, unilateral some athletes are. Some athletes only shoot a single leg to the right side, only throw a jab with their right hand. Only, you know, and as much as that's a, ta a tactical and a technical uh, thing to address with their coaches, it's, it's interesting to me that, um, well, it's not interesting, but I think it's logical that there's a correlation between um, super strong, one-sided approaches. Go, going back to the injury um, right to left and the imbalances, um, question A, is that something they did specifically with combat athletes? Because I know there's a lot of data out there, just period, in athletics, um, left to right. Um, the corrective exercise specialist from NASM is really big on that, looking at right to left. So just was curious if that book you guys have been referencing was specific two combat athletes and any research that they've done. Um, so that's question one. And then kind of part two of that, which I'd be both curious is, you know, there's 
the FMS, there's the SFMA, there's the CES, there's, there's all kinds of different screening things out there. Yeah. Everybody has their opinion on if they're worth it or not. You know, there, there's all kinds of thoughts. I can go both ways on, on any of them. Um, right. Is there one out there that is specific or is there something that you guys have found that has been really beneficial for not only looking at that, but just maybe performance in general? Alex, you can have it. Yeah, um, at the PI, the the whole book I think is just based off of observational data. They didn't okay. experimental thing at all. It's just the cases that they've had uh, throughout the I think three years now been open, and they're working on a volume two to that book. Um, but yeah, so no experimental data there, just observational. Um, and then as far as assessment goes, when I was with UFC, every kind of uh, department or every section of the performance team had their own custom-made evaluation which I think is, is hugely beneficial and they outline it pretty well in the book but it's a great tool to be able to have a specific assessment for a specific population right if, if we know what we're looking for and we know you know the energy demands or the strength demands of a sport then we can test those more applicably to a combat athlete um yeah and like i said most of the time when i was there we had athletes come in for the first time and they went through a whole week of testing in the gambit with the nutritional team with the physical therapy team with the strength and conditioning and just to get a better overall look at where an athlete is at whether they're in camp out of camp um what weight class they're fighting at what their current weight is just additional considerations for how we prepare this athlete and why we need to take this specific route of preparation. Yeah. And then, um, and on my end, I do just cause my background is I've, I've done a lot of DNS courses, uh, done some SFMA, done that type of stuff. I kind of combine SFMA neurodynamics and DNS into my assessments that I do. And on, obviously on the healthcare side, that's every athlete I work with. I, I do this similar screen where we're going to do a typical SFMA, run them through range of motions and stuff like stuff along those lines. Then we check their breathing, which I can do an entire podcast on how poorly combat athletes breathe. <laughs> They're terrible. Um, and well, then we'll say to, that for another day because that'd be good. Yeah. I'm putting a DNS around this podcast, so. Yeah, I, I could talk about that forever. Um, but that's that's a major portion of of what's going on as well is that they have that poor respiratory. Um, stereotype um, and then from there checking out the neurodynamics of their body to see if they're at an increased injury risk because if say I do a median nerve tensioner on the left side and I can only get their arm to about 45 degrees of extension and then I do a median nerve tensioner on the right side and it's full range of motion that's another metric that could lead us to some sort of injury and then we got to think all right if there's neural tension in that area, why is it, why is that nerve and musculature around there protecting that? So trying to figure out that underlying cause. So it just goes back to that bringing full circle, that left to right. If there's neural tension on the right, not the left or left and not the right, there's a reason behind it. And then trying to figure out why that reason is and trying to tease out what we can do to mitigate that injury risk. Makes sense. Um, We've kind of referenced it a little bit, and I know we even said we were going to come back to it, um, but we're going to jump in now. The weight cutting 
um, aspect of all of this um, and how that plays in to everything you're doing. And I think first um, I'd like to start with just wrestling because it's different. Um, and I think it could apply um, to just, you know, when you talk about wrestling from the top level all the way down to, you know, youth needing to make weight and everything um, with that. But how does that, A, from a performance side, and I'll go to Alex on that one to start with, and then B, um, Austin, a little bit more, you know, you follow up on the performance, but also just like the medical care side, because obviously if we're restricting calories um, and other things, we're potentially dampening the recovery process. So we'll start with wrestling, and then even if you want to talk a little bit about MMA on the back end of that, like I just – I think it would be – because they're two very different wrestling, you're kind of doing it through the course of a season, especially in college and high school. MMA, you're, like you mentioned, in eight-week blocks where – you've kind of got a set of what you're doing and it's one cut, not a series of them. Right. And, and that's, I think the biggest line and outlining the difference between professional, you know, MMA athletes or Olympic wrestlers versus, you know, your collegiate or high school athletes is through the season, you're making weight two, maybe three times a week on a, on a different week, maybe one time, but that's every week throughout a six month season. Right where your Olympic level athletes in wrestling or your MMA athletes are competing or fighting, you know, two to four to six times a year. Right. So you get two or three months to accomplish your weight cut per se, but within wrestling and within performance, the weight restriction aspect has a huge um, kind of impact on the weight room or on the sports performance side on what we're doing. Um, to start, and this is something I've learned over the years, is that when you approach your strength conditioning, and even if we go in the off season, it's not like a typical sport where we, you know, start with the strength endurance and go hypertrophy and then go to this, you know, there's not really a place for that, you know, unless an athlete's trying to go up a weight class or, or things like that. Um, we would be more beneficial if we kind of focused in on the direct strength qualities that we want to work on and then employ somewhat of a conjugate system or daily undulating system and that can work a little bit better as we approach into a wrestling season or into um, more maintaining or longevity with those athletes Um, so it's a consideration when we think about the training the weight training or the biometrics or whatever we're doing but it's not it doesn't eliminate all of our options. We still have a plethora of options of training modalities and methodologies that we can take advantage of. Yeah. And then on, on the treatment side, a lot of what I see is um, we, we kind of have to get rid of our high and in, high intensity. Cause I do a lot of rehab that employs some sort of strength conditioning into it because the best way to not get injured is to be strong. Um, that kind of goes out the window as soon as they hit, they start that weight cut. I do a lot more of our low level rehab, focus on one or two things instead of hitting the whole body as a system. Um, and then also I kind of bump up the passive care just because while, while we know it, it it's not going to be what makes the longest change. It's going to be what makes the athlete feel good as they're going through and their, their life already sucks enough. If you're a wrestler cutting weight four days out of a seven day week, like your life already sucks enough. Let's, while it is kind of fluff care, Let's make them feel a little bit better. Do the stuff that make that makes them get to their practice, get through the weight cut, and then on our Sundays and Mondays when we can focus on rehab, then we focus on a little bit more rehab. 
Um, but like you said, wrestling is such a different beast that you're making weight every single week that it's, it's gotta be a different type of mentality. So that's where we get in our passive care modalities and do some, a lot more needling and a lot more ART, a lot more stuff that's going to make them feel good instead of try to fix an issue. And if you extrapolate that into a wrestling season and you're focusing on the weight cut four days out of a week, you're utilizing passive care four days out of a seven day week for six months. It's not a shocker that performance and health deteriorate over season. And so that's, and there are some studies, you know, wrestling is a little bit better on the weight cut, rapid weight loss preventative side, just based on regulations and rules that have been put in place. Um, both I think in high school and in CAA because it's a little more of a controlled population. Whereas MMA, there's um, more extremity and more prevalence to the weight cuts that happen. Um, again, probably because there's a lot more space in between competitions or in between making weight. So that wraps up part one of this two-part episode around combat uh, athlete training and care. Uh, we'll be releasing the other one, uh, part two, with Alex and Austin next week. So please check back. Hope you enjoyed this first part. Got some unique insight into taking care of these athletes, and we'll see you next week.